Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We ended last week and started this week with all news regarding the Mueller report. Attorney General William Barr released his summary of the special counsel's report. He found that the Trump campaign did not conspire or coordinate with Russia to influence the 2016 election. Mueller also punted on making a decision on whether the president obstructed justice. While this is a victory for the president right now, the fight still continues. Democrats want William Barr to make the full report public. We spoke to Daniel Lippman. He's a reporter for Politico about all the political fallout and who the new target is. Adam Schiff. Republicans are demanding that he resign. They've been harping on Schiff, but it doesn't look like he's going to resign anytime right. soon. <laughs> he's a popular figure in the Democratic Party. And Democrats think that he's done a good job as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. That's a very high-pressure job. Devin Nunes used to be the chairman of that. He got a lot of criticism from Democrats when he had that job. And I don't expect many people in the media to apologize either. People who work in the media are generally proud individuals. They're not going to tout out to White House officials just because they want to have them repent for their sins. (laughs) Right. Where do we go with this from here on out? This big cloud that was over the presidency for the first two years of President Trump's term has now largely been lifted. Even though there's still questions as to obstruction, Democrats are demanding the full report. He can now move forward without really this cloud still hanging over him. That's true. And that that makes him very happy. It'll be a slightly more normal presidency, although nothing that Donald Trump does is ever fully normal. And so (laughs) I think we will move to more of a 2020 posture on both parties, kind of a campaign footing soon. And so the 2020 cycle is already kicked off and more attention will be focused on that. And the investigations will recede a little bit. That makes it easier for Democrats and Republicans to try to work together. But this has become this huge investigation that has never really stopped until just this weekend. And so President Trump wants to see what it's like to have a presidency that he can catch his breath and do the work of the country, although he does face a dozen other investigations that are a smaller scale and less high profile, but could still be harmful to him. What do Democrats do with this? How hard is it going to be to drag this on for two more years to the 2020 election cycle. I mean, even the candidates now, for the most part, you can't really use a lot of the stuff just because the president has been largely cleared. So for them, it's actually a good opportunity. You can move on to more of the issues, really show a differentiation between themselves and the president there. You don't have to use the whole Russia collusion thing as a backdrop of it. What are Democrats going to be doing? Democrats are going to be talking about Trump's character while in office, his actions as president, and not focus as much on the Mueller investigation, because they find that it's not something that many voters care about. Unfortunately, in in their view, they wish that voters cared more, but voters care about their own lives, their pocketbooks. And Democrats are going to talk a lot about jobs and the economy and health care and taxes. You know, taxes went up a little little off suburbs because of the Trump tax bill. And they're going to talk about whether Trump deserves a second term. Joe Biden, who is expected to announce the next couple of weeks, 
He's going to argue that, that Trump has disgraced the office of president and that he is a better choice and that he might kind of come out with his own running rate if before so they can have a kind of an even match with Trump and Pence and Biden and whoever he picks. Senator Lindsey Graham, one of the president's top allies and chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said that he's going to open an investigation into what's going on behind the scenes at the Justice Department leading up to the 2016 election. Even the president in his remarks over the weekend was saying, you know, I hope everybody looks into the other side and things like that. What is that going to look like? Is that investigation going to get any play? I don't think this inv- that investigation is going to go anywhere because Lindsey Graham can do what he wants and he's a friend of the president. He actually golfed with him this weekend. But this is going after old news stuff that is not likely to yield that much. It could be a like another Benghazi probe where nothing much is actually found. It's just the ongoing fight to release the entire Mueller probe. Are Democrats going to get their wish on that front? This is going to be a big court battle. It is something that Democrats will have to decide how long they want to spend on this and whether they want to make this as a high priority as they had talked about previously. But this is going to be something that Democrats say, well, we need the underlying evidence. We need to know how Mueller came to his conclusions or didn't. And then we can move forward on life of the country. But the American people have spent tens of billions of dollars on this probe. And the least that Americans deserve to get is a copy of what Mueller found. And we only know the bare minimum details right Right. now, minimal details. And that is just not enough for many Democrats. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A quick update on the still secret report on Russian interference and obstruction of justice. When William Barr released his summary, it was just the principal conclusions of that report. We're now finding out that that total report by Mueller was 300 plus pages. It indicates that Mueller went beyond the bare bones summary required of the Justice Department, and he probably laid out his conclusions at length. So who's to know what William Barr left out of his four-page summary? In the meantime, Democrats keep fighting for the full release of the report, but they keep getting blocked all over the place. You've heard of genetically modified foods. Now we have the first gene-edited foods, and it's being served in the Midwest, but nobody knows exactly where just yet. A product known as Kalino oil, which was made from gene-edited soybeans to have fewer saturated fats and zero trans fats, is being served at some Midwestern restaurants. Megan Multaney, she's a science reporter at Wired, spoke to us about how this gene-edited soybean came to be. If you kind of look at all of the oil that's used for cooking and baking in this country, about 80% of it comes from soybeans. But in their natural state, soybeans have this problem. They've got high concentrations of this fatty acid called linoleic acid, and that makes the oil spoil pretty quickly. So to make it last longer, food scientists started doing this thing called hydrogenation, that basically it's a chemical process to convert vegetable oils into like solid fats, kind of like margarine. But this process also created trans fat, and that's, you know, known to increase levels of heart-harming cholesterol. So a couple of years ago, the U.S. banned artificial trans fats from the food supply, and that went to effect last summer. And so traditional plant breeders have been trying to find a way to grow soybeans that don't have this fat profile. And Calix, which is a company based in Minnesota, is tackling the same problem with gene editing. And earlier this month, their first product, which is something called a high oleic soybean oil, hit the market. They said they have their first client, which is a a restaurant with multiple locations in the Midwest. Although, as you said, they're being kind of secretive about where exactly that product is being rolled out. (laughs) I'm sure they don't want to scare off people that might be wary of something like this. So that's why we don't get the name of the restaurant. But it's interesting. So they edited 
These soybean plants to produce oils have fewer saturated fats and zero trans fats. They call it Kalino, I think is what the name of the oil is. So there's a lot of interesting things at play. This company, Calix, is also working on wheats that have more fiber and less gluten. I'm sure that would be happy news to a lot of people. They're also working on potatoes that can safely be put in cold storage without accumulating sugars that catalyze into cancer-causing chemicals when cooked at high temperatures. I didn't know that was a thing, and it immediately made me think maybe I should not eat the frozen french fries I have in the freezer. So there's just some interesting <laughs> things for them to be working on. They're actually one of the first startups doing gene editing, and most people who for in, in food crops, and most people are familiar with CRISPR, kind of right. as the main kind of technology that is used in gene editing. Calix actually uses a slightly older technology called Talons. CRISPR is a little cheaper and easier to work with than Talons, but they function essentially in the same way. They're both enzymes that can be programmed to bind to a specific place in DNA and make a cut. And so Calix uses Talons, which was technology actually co-developed by their um, chief scientific officer back when he was, well, he's still at the University of Minnesota, but when he was just a professor there. And so they basically use Talons to disable a few genes that code for enzymes involved in fatty acid synthesis. And that basically allows them to create plants that have more of these oleic acids and less of these linoleic acids. And so what you wind up with is an oil that has kind of a profile, a fatty acid profile similar to olive oil, but it has kind of the flavorless aspect of soy oil that like is favored by food manufacturers because it's a pretty neutral flavor. So they have about 50 employees, this company Calix, and how does the process work? What are they doing day to day to modify these genes specifically and then and then grow them? Because they contracted with 78 farmers in Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, to grow all these soybeans and then have them made into the oil. Yeah, so they have kind of an interesting business model. You know, a lot of people who are familiar with first-generation GMOs think about, you know, Monsanto and Dow DuPont and how they sell farmer seeds and then they sell them herbicides that work with those seeds. Calix is doing something a little bit different. So they, they make these gene-edited plants in their labs. And basically, the way they do that is they kind of start with plant material in Petri dishes and they kind of inject the gene editing enzymes, and then basically they grow those up. They kind of douse them with hormones while they're in these petri dishes to grow little shoots and roots and stems, and then they grow them in kind of a sterile nursery until they're big enough that they can take a little punch out of the leaf, and then they analyze that to make sure that the edit has been made. And if they see that the edit has been made, they move it into uh, a greenhouse and they kind of grow them up and then they'll do field trials and they'll cross them with other breeds of soybean that are more adept at being in the wild environment of the outdoors outside of a lab. And what they'll do is when they can come to it, when they finally wind up with a plant that you know, has the edits they want and it grows well out in the field, then they'll start growing up those plants to make seeds. So they sell those seeds to farmers And then when they uh, make that sale, they already have a deal with those farmers to buy back the beans at the end of the season for a a known price. So the farmers know what they're getting and it kind of de-risks it for them a little bit because it's a pretty new thing. Then Calix pays to have the beans crushed at a processor and then they get the oil back and then they go out and try to shop that oil around to restaurants. And one of the interesting things is that the USDA obviously has approved GMO labeling requirements. This particular soybean oil is not subjected to that because it's not necessarily genetically modified. It's because of the process. It's gene edited. It's just slightly different enough where they don't have to put those labels on it. 
So about a year ago, the USDA concluded that most gene-edited foods would not require regulation. From the agency's point of view, gene editing is basically just a much faster form of breeding because you're not moving genes around from bacteria or viruses as traditional first-generation GMOs did. And so because in USDA's opinion, you're kind of making a simple deletion or doing something that could theoretically happen spontaneously in nature, scientists are just speeding that process along with the use of these molecular scissors that that they don't have to be regulated. It's kind of a big deal because what it's essentially doing is shaving years and tens of millions of dollars off the cost of developing these designer plants. So it's kind of enabling these smaller startups like Calix to enter the market, which allows these specialty crops, even if not a lot of people buy them or grow them, all of a sudden they become worth developing. Yeah. Megan Multaney, science reporter at Science Reporter at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Yep. Thank you very much for having me. My favorite story of the week is that of Joe Cameron, the woman who feels no pain. Joe is 71 years old now, and scientists are just finding out why she's gone her whole life without experiencing pain. She would often cut herself or burn herself and wouldn't notice until she saw the blood or smelled burning flesh. Rachel Feltman, editor at Popular Science, joins us for what makes Joe Cameron feel no pain. It's a gene mutation that scientists hope could help others in the future. What's really interesting about this case is that it may surprise some people to learn that this is not the first time scientists have studied someone who doesn't feel pain. And in fact, we know of a few different gene mutations that can cause this. But what's really unusual about her is that in most cases, traditionally, when we think about people who don't feel pain, we find out when they're really young because not feeling pain might sound like a superpower, but (laughs) it's actually really dangerous. You know, you think about all the things you learn not to do as a kid because they hurt. You learn you shouldn't play with broken glass. You learn you shouldn't put your hand on a hot stove. You notice when you're sick. I got appendicitis when I was 12, and I certainly wouldn't have known I my life was in danger if I wasn't in pain. So it, things like that usually become a problem, and these children either die due to illness or accidents, or a doctor figures out that there's something unusual going on. So the really interesting thing about this Scottish woman is that doctors did not find out until she was 66, and that was because she came in with a thumb that was so badly deteriorated due to arthritis that she could not use it. But she said that it felt perfectly fine. And after the surgery, she said it felt perfectly fine, even though she had just had surgery on her thumb. That struck the doctors as so unusual that they sent her for a consult with a couple of specialist teams at University College London and Oxford. And they decided to take a look at her genome and they found a mutation that, while it was on a gene we know about, was not previously associated with this rare lack of pain sense. When she went in to speak to her doctors, they said, you're definitely going to need strong painkillers after this because it can be very... Very brutal. And she says, I bet I won't, you know, just like really matter of fact, like I already know this. She went through her whole life this way, getting cuts, burns. She said that it often took the smell of burning flesh or her husband to say, hey, you're on fire. You're burning yourself before she would really realize it. And the one that I love too here is that she would eat scotch bonnet chili peppers and say that she only had a pleasant glow after. So if you think of habanero peppers, these scotch bonnet ones are at least twice as hot as those, some 450,000 on the Scoville unit level. This is kind of the life she was living. And she 
didn't really think much of it. The other thing that this gene mutation allowed her was they say that she lived a life mostly free of anxiety and fear also, which is another thing that researchers really want to look into. She took an anxiety disorder questionnaire. She scored zero out of 21, and she said she could never remember feeling depressed or scared or anything in her life. There was one incident she referenced that they talked about in the case study where she was in a car accident and she didn't feel any kind of panic the entire time. She flipped upside down in that car when she had that accident. (laughs) And yeah, she didn't feel any anxiety. What's really fascinating to me is that it really makes you wonder how many people assume they just have a high pain tolerance and they actually have extremely abnormal perception of pain, especially since, at least according to her anecdotes, it sounds like her father probably had the same mutation. Her son has like a partial, he inherited it from his mom, but not his dad. So he has like some of this desensitivity, but it sounds like her father had it completely. And so, you know, you have to imagine that because her father had also always been this way, that added to the illusion that this is normal. They said that there are a few downsides to this, only in the fact that she is quite forgetful. She's prone to losing a lot of things or losing her train of thought mid-sentence. And the other is that she's never felt that kind of adrenaline rush that a lot of people talk about. That probably figures into her you know, low anxiety and lack of fear also. Briefly describe to us how this works, how this gene mutation actually results in her feeling less pain. There are several different gene mutations that have been associated with lack of pain. In Jean's case, it is what we call a pseudogene. So it's basically where you have a regular gene like everyone else has, but then you have another partial copy of it somewhere in your DNA. Now, in most cases, these won't do anything. They're partial genes. They're going to end up being junk DNA. We have a lot of that, but sometimes they do do something, often at least slightly related to what the whole gene does. In her case, they knew that the original gene, the pseudogene was a partial copy of, it creates an enzyme that breaks down something called anandamide. And that's a cannabinoid natural in the human body. And it promotes euphoria and decreases bad sensations, sadness, pain, lots of things like that. Some researchers think that it might be part of that rush of good feeling you have when you exercise, that kind of dulls pain, if you think about it. And sure enough, she had 70% more of this than is typical. So she's kind of always having that (laughs) like high you have when you push yourself really hard to work out and you're like pushing a little bit harder. They've tried to harness this specific gene before in combating depression and anxiety and haven't been successful. And they're not really sure why. So there's a lot of hope that studying how exactly this works in her can help. We have seen some downsides in these rodent subjects where they have problems with memory. And sure enough, the woman in the case report says that she does have trouble remembering things. I think she even said sometimes she forgets a word she's trying to recall mid-sentence. So obviously that is not awesome. But she also seems to have a slightly higher rate of healing than average, which is also something that has been seen in the mouse subjects. So it's all really cool and it provides a lot of opportunities for researchers to learn more and potentially help people. And for the next few years, I'm assuming that she's going to be working with researchers so they can find out as much as they can about her and these specific gene mutations. Rachel Feltman, science editor at Popular Science, host of the PopSci podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.